Hello, and welcome to the first Floor 9 episode of 2023. As ever, I'm your host, Ryan Miller, and today we're going to be having a special CES conversation at the top of the new year. I'm going to be joined by each of the lab members to review each of their content sessions that we had while we were on the ground in Vegas, as well as go over some of the favorite takeaways from the show floor that we saw this year. 2023 marked the first time we were back at CES in two and a half years or so. And for the first time, we got to lay eyes on the West Hall, the brand new West Hall, which most of the automakers moved into as we accommodated a shift to more space. South Hall, a remnant of the CES pass, has now been converted into a COVID testing facility, not necessarily novel and innovative of sorts. But I want to first welcome to the microphone Chad Stoller, the head of innovation at UM. Chad, as a CES, CES veteran, was there anything new, surprising, interesting, catch you off guard being back on the floor for the first time in two and a half years? I think being being back caught me off guard. It had been that long. It was definitely like head spinning a little bit because I think that we all have muscle memory of CES and kind of like what to expect and muscle memory in terms of like navigation and direction, but then also at the same time of like our own expectations and everything was definitely subject to change. Maybe the biggest innovation was the West Hall, right? Just seeing like a whole new right. building. I know that there were a lot of people who got to see it last year. Did it have that new building smell for you? It did have that new building smell. But you know, the part about it that I thought was really fun was that, you know, you walk into this new building and it's like really nice and it's really different. And it's also like elevated and it's, it's super great. And then you're just in another conference hall. Like there was nothing inside the conference hall that was like modern, new, and felt like this is going to be the home of CES. So like, oh, let's rethink what a conference hall looks like. I didn't spend as much time on the floor as you guys did. Part of me feels, feels a little blessed, uh, but at the same time, I feel a tremendous amount of guilt because I do enjoy CES as much as I would love to tell everybody, oh, CES is, is you know, like a punch in the face coming after the holidays. I was really looking forward to just being personally impressed and inspired and so forth, especially since the last time we were physically there at CES, like I'm now living in a house. And so clearly I now have like a real personal interest in some things. Also, I've been driving a car, which a lot of people love to point out. The Two big categories for CES. Two big categories for CES, that's for sure. I just didn't find the show as inspiring. Nothing really poked at me to make me really think that something was going to change or that we were, we were solving a legitimate problem versus people like solving a problem that people don't necessarily have. And I, and I know there's been some commentary about, especially I think it was like the Lenovo stuff, like some people really liked what they were doing with the multiple screens and things like that. And, and I get it. But as Chelsea pointed out during the CES presentations, it's like, Okay, great. That's cool that my refrigerator is going to be my home DJ, you know, and all that other stuff. And it's like, I look at that stuff and it's like, I don't know if people are going to add those things incrementally, but I like to look at those things the same way people look at concept cars, which is like the concept car is not going to be on the road in five years, but maybe the lights will. Those little things are like the improvements to an interior or something like that. We have to look at CES for signs of future expression and signs of future like small things. People ask me, hey, you know, what was the first year you went to CES? I always say I like to date it based on the tech that was unveiled there. So I'm a big super VHS guy or an SVHS guy. Mm. Um, and that's kind of like when I first started going. And I don't know what I would necessarily look at this CES to say it was the era of this. I think that I might say this was the era of return from COVID. My completely unscientific evaluation of the attendance is I would put it at around 70% attendance. Of 70% of where it used to be. And let's yeah. dwell on this a little, a little bit. You're not 
taking a scientific analysis or perspective, but having gone quite a few times now, this was an underwhelming from an attendance perspective and also did the halls feel a little more empty from an exhibitor perspective? I, I think both. I think both. I think that, like Ryan, we've been doing this together for enough years going to CES where it's kind of like investment bankers and hedge funds and all those guys, they always have their little yeah. signals. You know what I mean? Where they take of course. parking lots to determine, oh, this is an indicator of retail and stuff like that. Our indicators are always about passageways, right? And corridors and things like that. And I felt like all of those things were lower than normal. I felt that restaurants, and I think it was like somebody on the team pointed it out that a bunch of the restaurants like in between the Wynn and the Venetian, mm -hmm. they weren't sponsored by the media companies anymore. So it was nope. clear that there was like some of that, which was also an indicator that fewer clients were going, fewer industry, you know, Listen, the media business and the advertising business is a barnacle on the boat of CES, right? It's like <laughs> CES is going to happen without advertising agencies and stuff like that. But you could just tell that that sector of the business was a lot lighter and that contributes to a down population. The second part of your question, which was about booth layouts, is that I feel like there was like kind of like a big shuffle because there were probably bigger players that got moved to another hall, like the West Hall and things like that. But then there were companies that we relied on for being there for five or six years that weren't there. They were probably in hotel rooms or hotel suites. But then you saw things filling in the gaps. A good example would be in the Sands Upper, all of a sudden the Innovation Awards were in there versus being in a separate ballroom. And then there were, at the same time, we also saw India Tech was up there and maybe it was Canada Tech up there too. Yeah, a few of the nations had migrated from Eureka Park upstairs. So it looks like they, they, filled in, they filled in some of the gaps. One criticism I would have for Gary Shapiro is that they got to reorganize things so you can now say health tech is here, cars are here, and things seem kind of blended. You're talking about all these people kind of coming in, coming out, and you would always talk to me about CES being traditionally a show for buyers and sellers. Are we seeing CES now right-sizing itself as to what kind of show it is and who it's for primarily? I hope so. You go over to the C-Space, that's called at the Aria, and it was really, really funny. It was just like an isolated area of just like advertising people and stuff like <laughs> that and media people. Because I walked in and I have this great photo I remember sending it, I think it was to Adam and to Joshua. Uh, Joshua Lowcock, where there was just a bunch of paddles of meeting rooms, and it felt like a physical representation of visiting a web page on your computer. Because it was all these ad tech companies lined up, and it was just like basically all these intermediaries who just wanted to fight and bid for your attention and stuff like that. So I kind of felt like, okay, that's working there, where there, all those advertising people are going there. And, and people always say to me, whenever I see those people at night or something like that, to be like, what's it like out there on the floor? Because I can't get out of the area. So, <laughs> so maybe maybe it is right-sizing a little bit, but I, I do believe that CES means more than just buyers and sellers of electronics. I think that a lot of industries look at action as CES as a trip they want to make because they want to restart the year. Or maybe mm. they've just been at, they've been at home for like two weeks or three sure. weeks or something like that. And so people want to get out and they want to see their friends and stuff like that. And the same way that people were talking about Can last year, one thing that was really nice about CES was just seeing some people you haven't seen in a long time, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, so that part I did, I did really appreciate it. I caught up with a lot of friends that are now in new businesses, new roles. One of my friends is now over at Amazon in business development. It was fascinating just to hear a little bit more about the work that he's doing. And then through that, I just met a bunch of people that work for technology companies and businesses that are completely different than ours. And so it was just kind of refreshing just to hear a different take. Well, it's nice that you can inject innovation from that perspective, from what you perceive to be a lackluster show floor tour that you had. You can get a little diversity of thought you may not have been privy to otherwise, not having been able to come together. So I'm glad that we could satiate your brain somehow at CES. 
I, you know, I still had a good time and it was fun. Like on the last day I walked around a little bit with Adam. I do have a bone to pick with Adam though, because like one of the things was, there was one product that he's just been complaining about. And then he had his chance. He had his chance right there. He stared him down on the show floor. I asked him a question and Adam back down. So Adam will probably tell you a different version of that story. I'll stand by, by my experience. No, I got to bring yeah. the defense into the argument now. Like, what say ye, Adam? You wanted me to, I mean, I told the guy what happened and he just backed away from me. <laughs> he was like, oh. you had him. You didn't close him. You didn't close him. You had him. To rein it back in, <laughs> some of us, you know, did enjoy some of the things they see and didn't get into spats over the validity of products. Chad, did you have any pleasant conversations while you were on the show floor? Maybe things that you enjoyed? The thing is, like, Adam's just going to make fun of me. Like, I, I got to meet the people over at Govi. I like the Govi smart home products because their products actually have wonderful apps. And that was actually kind of interesting. Like, obviously, they're responding to a lot of COVID trends with people buying air purifiers and things like that. But they had a whole, they had a line of sensors that were designed precisely for people movement. So air purifiers can turn on and turn off. So I think things like that were pretty cool. I was also pretty impressed and I've actually had some subsequently some conversations with some friends about a lot of the autonomous outdoor equipment. So, you know, everyone looks at the John Deere stuff, but then a bunch of us saw all a bunch of us saw and also question, right? Some of those autonomous lawnmowers, leaf blowers and snow blowers. I don't know how those things will work in the snow, but whatnot, but there's something really interesting about all of that. And so it's kind of nice to see that smart home vacuum kind of like now graduate from outside the house and start moving into other places. And the amount of manufacturers that were making similar products in that space goes to show you that people will want it and there's the technology there to make it work. Just the question is, is that you got to really prove those products work. Yeah. And it's good though, that competition exists to really help drive down the price point for the consumer. Cause I think one of the more premium tier brands we saw Yarvo, the snowblower was priced at 4,000 mm -hmm. or something extravagant, yeah. which, which is definitely nice if you live somewhere where it snows quite frequently or have a house with a lot of property as you do now. I don't have a lot of property. <laughs> more than you did <laughs> in the city. Sure. I definitely have much more than I did in the city. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, that, that's for sure. Anything's an upgrade from a sidewalk. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. Anyway, Chad, thank you as always for being here. Very much appreciate your perspective on the evolution of CES and your takeaways from the show floor this year. Thank you. That was Chad Solar you just heard from who gave us a comprehensive overview on the evolution of CES and some of the interesting things he saw from a veteran's perspective this year in 2023. Pivoting the conversation slightly to dive a little bit more closely into the categories that we covered during CES, I'm first going to introduce my classic co-host, Adam Simon. Adam, thanks for being here. Yeah, of course. Always excited to talk about CES. Yeah, it's always uh, my most favorite time of the year, especially just following the most wonderful time of the year. It's a nice little back-to-back -back combo at the end. But anyway, I want to first dive into some of the interesting things that you covered on the show floor this year. Why don't you talk a little bit more about mobility and some of the trends that we saw in that space first? CES obviously traditionally was a TV and stereo show, mm. but over the past decade, it's really turned into a bit of an auto show as well. Agreed. A bunch of interesting things that we saw, saw on the show floor, most notably the fact that Sony decided to not announce any televisions at CES, mm. but actually spent most of their stage time talking about formally announcing their forthcoming electric vehicle, the Afila, which they're developing in partnership with Honda. This is interesting for a number of reasons. Sony has been sort of teasing the 
idea of getting into EVs at CES for a number of years. They're really committed to it this time. They're actually going to start shipping these cars in 2026. So still a few years away, but they are committed to shipping things to consumers. We don't have any prices yet. The car design is not actually finalized as you might mm -hmm. expect for something that's not shipping for three years. But I think the most notable thing is that they made a big deal about the fact that they felt like for Sony, they had to get into the, the vehicle space just to, to sort of complete their media ecosystem that they have with obviously their televisions and their stereos right. and their and PlayStation. That is pretty indicative of how everybody's feeling about what's happening in mobility these days. We also saw companies like LG and Samsung announce their own mm. um, infotainment ecosystems for cars that theoretically they're going to be working with other OEMs to embed their capabilities, much in the same way that Apple and Google have have been working with OEMs to embed CarPlay and Android Auto in vehicles for years now. Samsung and LG, a little late to the game, but you know they see, see the same opportunity, not yet ready to commit to making their own vehicles like Sony, but they see that controlling the media inside the vehicle is a huge opportunity. The thing that sort of hangs over all of that is we know that Apple has been working internally on their research and development on a vehicle. And I think that they probably would cite very similar reasons to Sony for getting into the, the vehicle space as well. Obviously, that product is not announced. From what we hear, there's been a lot of turmoil in that team inside of Apple. Maybe that will mm -hmm. never see the, the light of day. I do think that everybody's coalescing around the ecosystem of the vehicle. And we've talked about autonomy for a long time. I think everybody at this point is pretty aware that autonomy is not around the corner, despite what uh, certain sure. owners of certain social media platforms might say. Everybody knows that even ahead of autonomy, the shift to electric vehicles is really sort of changing the ecosystem. Obviously, the ecosystem for charging is a large part of how uh, OEMs compete in the space. Mm. Um, and there were a ton of charging infrastructure announcements and startups in the space at CES. But I think increasingly, and to, to our purposes here, the media ecosystem is the other playing field. Even before we get to autonomy, which we know will transform how we consume media inside our vehicles, everybody is trying to put their their, their sort of chess pieces in, in the right place so that when we do get to autonomy, even if it's an, another decade from now, they'll have that ecosystem already in place, ready to go. I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff there that I want to unpack. First, you alluded to, you know, Apple making a car. Sony obviously debuted the Afila. We know LG and Samsung are doing the onboard operation systems. We know Amazon is integrated into BMW. So do you think anyone is best positioned to own that in-car relationship at the moment? And if so, why? <laughs> we also saw uh, Microsoft uh, making moves <laughs> right. around Can't car forget. ecosystems. I forgot about Amazon for a second. Yeah, it's like everybody uh, who you might think of who, who who could possibly justify it. The thing to watch is obviously Apple and Google have a head start. They've been doing it for the longest amount of time. CarPlay and Android Auto were significant upgrades on the in-car experience to what most OEMs were shipping. They just have all of the, the data and the apps that people want to use already. The big question in my mind is what OEMs do in the meantime, because yeah. <laughs> uh, there's now all of these platforms available, but uh, a lot of OEMs are really hesitant to give any more power than they need to to any of these third parties. They kind of got backed into a corner where they kind of had to let Apple and Google into their vehicles with CarPlay 
and Android Auto, just because consumers were demanding that they were not quick enough to develop their own mm -hmm. and, and modernize their own in-car systems. But now that everybody sort of sees what's happening, and as we move to new architectures for vehicles that allow for more modern integration across not just the infotainment systems, but also things like climate control and security and all of that, moving that to, to sort of more modern platforms, I do think that OEMs are going to push back and are going to try to convince people to keep using their, their sort of built-in systems. And I don't think that they're going to shut out CarPlay and Android Auto, but I do think it's going to be hard for folks like Samsung and LG to really get a, a foothold there, which I think maybe supports Sony's decision to go all in on their own vehicle and not leave any of that to chance. You know, Samsung, obviously, they have their whole home ecosystem and their, their smartphone ecosystem. Maybe there are enough Samsung users who would, will demand Samsung's version uh, to be added as well. LG, I just don't see it. <laughs> like, Probably not. What the argument is there. And then I think on the OEM side, it's just, um, it's not just are they good enough today, but are they going to be able to keep up in terms of software updates? One of the nice things about CarPlay and Android Auto is they theoretically get software updates every year with the new yep. updates of the OS. They don't always get significant updates, but there are, you know, there is the ability to update them even more often than once a year. Whereas most OEMs are still just getting used to the idea of pushing over the air software updates, much less pushing them out continuously. So I think a lot of them will get there. Uh, and those who don't will be wise to partner with one of these platforms. It's going to be a really bloody battle i think it's like it's like it's it's if you can think about it kind of like the early days uh maybe two years ago of the streaming wars when everybody was just launching their mm. streaming services before they started sort of backing away and renegotiating and rethinking things we're in those very early innings of the battle for the the media ecosystem inside of vehicles and i think that means there's going to be a lot of options but not all of these are going to survive so you said the magic words for our listeners earlier when you were talking about some of the innovations coming to the car and that's media moments. And now do you think this fragmentation of the onboard operating system is going to lead to more like disparate opportunities for advertisers seeking to have a presence in the vehicle than before, as opposed to if there was universally adopted standards similar to what we're seeing with matter in the smart home? I, that's a great analogy to, to matter in the smart home. I, I don't think we'll see something similar happen in vehicles because the desire is to have every home have dozens of devices, mm. whereas most households are going to have probably one or two vehicles. Um, and right. it might be nice if your vehicles support the same ecosystem and you, you can use the same apps and services in them. I don't think that that's even a requirement in the next few years, though. I think it's fine if they're a little different. In terms of actual advertising, advertising, like I think the most reliable place is still integrating into the map and that that is mm -hmm. something that obviously Google supports and Waze supports. The rumor is that Apple is going to support it. There was just a, an announcement yesterday that maybe indicates they might be headed in that direction. That's the most reliable way to reach folks in the car. And of course, audio advertising, whether via streaming music or, or podcasts is another great place. For brands that are looking to bring their services to the car, I'm thinking of things like in-dashboard ordering for fast food or coffee or things like that. Mm -hmm. um, that is something that is much harder because it would require developing separate apps for all of these platforms. And if you're a fast casual restaurant or a QSR, it might be worth it to invest in, in that strategy. But you, at some point, you have to look at the numbers. How many cars are going to support Samsung or LG's platforms? Mm. You might want to wait and see what the demand looks like before you invest in those. Whereas 
on CarPlay and Android Auto, you already know there's a huge install base at that point. I would say that the other mass media moment when it comes to brands looking to own this relationship near and around the cars at the pump or quote unquote at the pump. And I think one of the big trends we saw at CES this year was the continued electrification of vehicles as well as the supported infrastructure and ecosystem. Anything novel there from a innovation perspective? Is it something that we should be thinking more about as brands as more people switch to electric vehicles? The one shift is obviously the charging happen takes longer and happens in different places. A lot mm. of folks will be charging at home, of course, um, where there is not really an opportunity for um, any media there because they're just going to walk into the other room as soon as they plug in. But there are those on-the-go charging opportunities. There are a number of networks that are popping up to support brand and, and uh, media moments at charging stations. But also, I think it's an opportunity to engage, whether it's through the dashboard and the car interfaces themselves or just targeting people with location based on the fact that we know they're at a charging location, targeting them on mobile and on their other devices that they might pull out to use while they're waiting to charge. It's obviously a, a moment of downtime where folks are going to be reading, watching, listening, playing something and opportunity to engage mm -hmm. them there. So might be a great opportunity for sampling of media or just to uh, you know remind them of, of something that they might engage with. It does change the calculation for things like C-stores and brands that might be popular at C-stores. Obviously, that there's even more time to engage with mm -hmm. folks. You might shift uh, some of that behavior from C-store to QSR behavior, and where you might actually see people sit down and actually have a meal for 20 minutes or a half an hour. I think that is all still developing, and there's a lot of room for experimentation. I know you and I are both car owners, but that's more than enough car talk for me. I will close it on one more question for me. Would you pay $1,300 a year to make your car accelerate from zero to 60 one second faster? Uh, no. Yeah, well, that was <laughs> one of the CES innovations that we're going to quickly discard. But anyway. <laughs> I think that this trend of in-app purchases to unlock functionality that is already shipping with your vehicle is an interesting trend. I do think that OEMs have to be careful because certainly if you're trying to push a luxury experience or a luxury brand, you don't want to feel like you're nickel and diming folks, especially when they know that the hardware is already there. It's not the same as a software. If you're unlocking certain software capabilities like streaming radio or whatever, fine. Put that in there. That makes sense. But unlocking hardware that you've already shipped feels a little cheap. Imagine getting a notification when you're in bed in the morning, like, ooh, looking cold today. Would you like to pre-start your car for 99 cents? I often forget to preheat the car. Do I actually <laughs> need the ability to do that for $300 a year? I don't know. Anyway, agnostic of category, moving away <laughs> from mobility, what was the coolest thing you saw on the show floor this year or something that really inspired you? I mean, several things. Um, I think the one thing that I feel like folks don't want to talk about because it's gross, but that I think is notable is the Wyvang's U-Scan, which is a device that mm -hmm. goes into your toilet and analyzes your output to help give you nutrition guidance. And I know it, no one wants to talk about it. No one wants to think about it. We've been talking about this at CES every year because there's often a, a toilet manufacturer who comes to the show with some kind of connected toilet that doesn't actually do anything useful. It just like yeah. lights up or it, like it synchronizes its lights to your music. And it's like, Sick. well... Do I really need my toilet to do that? At least this is, it's an aftermarket device. It hooks into Wything's larger health ecosystem with their scales and their watches and their other devices. It's not shipping for another six months. So we'll have to see what the reviews are like when it comes out. But the idea of providing accurate diagnostics that lead to actionable steps you can take 
today with how you're eating and what you're consuming, that has the power to be transformative for consumers and for the health and wellness ecosystem. It's something that we've been looking for from wearable devices that we think eventually we'll be able to do things like blood glucose monitoring on devices like an Apple Watch. That always seems like that's two or three years away from actually shipping. So this is something that they're going to ship later this year and that will provide active nutrition guidance. Again, we'll have to see how well it works in practice. I don't think a lot of people are going to buy this as an aftermarket device, but I do mm. think that if this does work and people are, even in a relatively small sample set, are responding to it, I do think that we might see toilet manufacturers looking to build this into their toilets eventually. It's the kind of thing, again, if it works, that I think we might see everywhere in not even five years, 10 years. I think it'll take a while to get there. The two biggest problems that we have with health and wellness at this point are input and output. And this is trying to address one of those issues. May I just say, expertly wordsmith throughout that conversation. <laughs> well, thank you, Adam, for introducing that quite clever piece of technology from Wythings that will be making its way into toilet bowls near you potentially in six months' time. But appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with us about your favorite innovations from CES. Thanks, Adam. Of course. Pivoting in a way to talk about digital health, and if you were hoping we'd land on this conversation, you're in luck. <laughs> Here to tell you more about the Wythings U scan and what that U actually stands for is our resident digital health expert, Katie Geisreiter. Katie, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Um, I love any opportunity to talk about P. Well, let's start there. What does the <laughs> U stand for in U scan and why was that one of the more prominent digital health innovations we saw on the show floor this year? It stands for urine, Ryan. It stands thank for you. urine. It was really interesting. Obviously, this is something like the smart toilet, like Adam talked about, is something that the lab has been kind of joking, but not joking about for years. And just the way that having that kind of device embedded into the toilet could streamline a lot of the health tracking that we see in so many other different devices. But obviously, its presence there would make that tracking a lot more ambient and a lot more, you know, just a lot more straightforward. There were a couple of examples of this kind of technology on the show floor, in addition to the Wythings U-Scan, which obviously is something that sits in your toilet with a little cartridge and it measures various kinds of health metrics. They're focusing initially, I think, on cycle tracking and nutrition tracking, but obviously with plans to expand that into, into some other metrics as well. We saw other brands on the show floor also have kind of similar offerings. There was one, I think, called Vivu, Vivu, that also had a urinalysis at home thing. Didn't seem as streamlined as the Wythings one. And being that it already has this foot in the digital health space, it is, mm -hmm. is likely going to be the one to popularize this sort of device, you know, if people can get around the kind of ick factor of reaching into your toilet. Adam, when he first touched on the U-Scan device from Wythings, alluded to the nutrition tracking that it has embedded within the technology. One of the other features is the cycle tracking element of it. Now, do you foresee any privacy concerns with that? And are there other similar privacy concerns with some of the technologies that we see at CES on the show floor from a digital health perspective? I don't know specifically what Wythings privacy policies are. They have a bunch of different devices, all, you know, that as that, to Adam's point, connect back to their same cohesive ecosystem with anything that is cycle tracking, there are obviously a lot of, you know, more, there's more scrutiny and kind of privacy implications for that, given Roe v. Wade was overturned, and that data could theoretically be used to penalize a person who is seeking an abortion. In general, though, I think that we did see a stronger emphasis on data privacy. 
So Katie, I want to pivot to some other interesting digital health innovations. Were there any devices that caught your interest in terms of being novel or maybe some interesting introductions into the device range for physicians? There wasn't anything, I think, truly groundbreaking from that remote monitoring perspective, but we did see both Vitalon and MedWand there. They've both been at CES in past years. They both offer either one device, which is the MedWand basically is like an all-in-one device for clinical vitals capture. And then Vitalon has this kind of suite of products that basically allows doctors to do the same thing. Those are both pretty interesting to see, obviously. People aren't necessarily continuing to use telehealth in the way that they were earlier on in the pandemic. But for people with mobility issues, if you're elderly, have another kind of disability, these kinds of remote monitoring products are really interesting and can help you achieve care in ways that are, are more comfortable and more humane, I guess. Other than that, it was a little bit disappointing, honestly, just walking around seeing just every single iteration of a smartwatch you could possibly imagine. Everyone has their own app. It's all very thrilling. They're making these recommendations based on your data. And it's just all of the proposition is kind of the same. But there were a couple of interesting wearables in that space that I thought were worth bringing up. The first one was NoWatch, which is from this Dutch company that basically it has these sensors that track all of the usual health metrics. But rather than having this kind of like mini smartphone on your wrist when you're wearing like an Apple Watch or something, it just has basically like a geode or an interesting kind of stone. The point of it is to eliminate a lot of distraction around notifications. You know, if you are getting a notification that your heart rate has spiked or something when you're particularly stressed out and you get that notification, I just don't think that, that in that moment that's particularly helpful. It's just adding like a stimuli where there doesn't necessarily need to be one. I love when my watch is shouting at me to calm down. Right. Yeah. It's like, I, you are an inanimate object. You don't control me. Yeah. Um, but so they, that's really, I thought that that was really interesting, just kind of moving away entirely from that kind of interface in the way that outside of the health aspects of wearables, we've historically thought about wearables as moving away from the smartphone into a different interface. Another one that was really interesting in this kind of wearable space was Barracuda's Be Heart Band. It doesn't come with, you know, the, the watch face, whatever, you'd have to attach it on your own. But the reason I'm bringing it up is because it doesn't need a battery to be charged in any way. It charges with kinetic energy, basically using your body's heat and everything. Really interesting from a sustainability perspective. Also probably good for people who don't want to charge their watch every day or just mm -hmm. don't want that kind of high touch technology, kind of a, a novel take on it. Probably designed for people who don't spend eight hours a day plus in their office chair like me. Yeah, uh, couldn't be me. <laughs> but, <laughs> but anyway, we're talking about wearables and we've kind of focused on watches a little bit. Were there any examples of other types of wearable devices that were interesting from a digital health point of view? Yeah. So one of them that we saw was Ergo. They offer over-the-counter hearing aids. Their latest model offers this technology that basically changes what the person is hearing depending on how noisy their environment is, that kind of thing. This is all really interesting because the FDA just announced that they could create a new class of OTC hearing aids. This kind of positions Ergo as a leader in this space. This is their third generation of OTC hearing aid. As more and more brands move into the OTC hearing aid space as, you know, that's a huge opportunity for them, we would anticipate that Ergo is really kind of leading the charge in that. 
Well, there's definitely no shortage of devices to help us with our own health monitoring. And as we prepare for this digital health-focused future, I think we're going to start seeing a lot more people with gizmos and gadgets attached to themselves in order to make sense of what's going on in their bodies. But Katie, stepping away from the digital health conversation, was there anything that interested you beyond these med wands and whatever other the devices are called? Yes. My favorite thing that I saw, and this is actually something that we saw when we were scouting the show floor, the very mm -hmm. first day we got there was the Vessel Smart Cabin. So basically that's just a smart cabin. They offer micro hotel housing. It's all prefabricated, made with minimal environmental impact and zero construction waste. You can just take this insane looking mobile home and put it wherever. Super I feel like mobile home might be doing it a little bit of a disservice. These are ultra chic, right? They present it as like a smart cabin, but the shape of it and how modular it is does look a lot like, you know, a super high-tech mobile home. This vessel has two porches. I don't even More have porches one. porches than I have. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's how you know you've made it in life. You don't have one porch, but you've got two. Next step yep. when you've really made it is the veranda. One of the things that they really highlight is just being immersed in nature with these huge windows and, you know, you have your little deck and everything and... It uses these kind of smart home technologies to really make that immersion seamless. And, you know, it's not a rustic experience. Mm -hmm. You are very much glamping. It's very much high tech and to using that to connect you with nature a little bit more. And they are definitely hitting every buzzword that's important, especially oh, as we move forward at CES and start seeing these sentiments echoed by every company, sustainability, carbon-free, eco-friendly, all the big buzzwords you want to hit. So if you have the opportunity, definitely would check out the vessel. But Katie, thank you for your wisdom and your insight. You're welcome. So we just talked a little bit about the vessel with Katie Geisreiter, but here to talk a little bit more about the things that go on inside of the home is Chelsea Freitas. Chelsea, thanks for being here. Hi, Ryan. Hi, team. Glad to have you here. So before we dive into what innovations particularly piqued your interest, why don't you give us the TLDR on what the at-home economy ultimately entails and what are some of the key takeaways for our brands to note? So when we think about the at-home economy, what we're really thinking about is that ecosystem of technology within the home. That enables a lot of different things, whether it be enhanced seamless delivery or the communication between devices or basically enabling a streamlined, smarter ecosystem of technology within the home. As CES, we saw a lot of innovation in this space. This is always a really hot topic, and I was excited to get to present about it. What would you say mattered the most about the at-home economy? I mean, right there, you're laying it down, making my job easy, Ryan. I think matter was clearly the hot topic of this year. Matter is a universal interoperability protocol. This has been a public initiative now since 2019, but it was not fully accepted or rolled out by some of the big players until November of last year. This created a lot of momentum leading in to CES this year because it really essentially creates more compatibility among devices. It means that developers, big or small, are all innovating within the same open protocol so that there can be greater communication and streamlined commands between devices. Thinking ahead to the future, this means a smarter at-home ecosystem with more compatibility and more capabilities among these different tech devices in the home. So we're talking like Apple, talking to Google, talking to Philips, talking to Samsung, it's all good? 
You're exactly right. As a smart home user, you no longer need to pop in and out of various mobile apps. Should Matter roll out as expected or as it's been talked about to date, this should now be more universal control centers and these devices should be able to communicate more seamlessly with each other. You're no longer hooked into one singular ecosystem. You can pick technology or cherry pick technology that really fits what you want to do with your home. So you're talking about what consumers really want to do with their home. Have we moved into this future state where we're going to have this adaptive technology in the home to respond to the user in the environment and have these pre-baked routines for the person based on presence detection? This is a great question. I think ultimately we're moving toward this future of more automation and increased automation, whether it be technology like the AI powered Samsung oven that already has pre-programmed recipes as part of the oven so that it can respond and set the specific mode for what that user needs, or whether it's something like LG's Wizen air conditioner unit that picks up on users' sleep habits and then optimizes how it controls your airflow specific to whatever sleep phase or sleep cycle you're in. So we did see a lot of announcements about automation, but we're not quite fully in an ambient ecosystem. I think we're right in the thick of beginning to see some hero products and technology. Obviously, long way to go, not quite where in this fully automated or ambient technology future. So you mentioned a couple of really interesting innovations, specifically the Samsung oven that allows you to detect whether or not your food is going to be burning. I know your New Year's resolution is to cook more. So why don't you tell me about the other feature that is baked into that oven that could be useful for a budding young chef? Absolutely. So this was fun, right? We're like far off from this being in every kitchen everywhere. But something that was absolutely just like a fun innovation to, to learn about was Samsung's in-oven camera. So this in-oven camera is basically like your virtual assistant. This is going to, A, just keep an eye on your food for you and send you updates to your phone based on what you need to know, what phase of the cooking process you're in. But beyond that, it's creating this live stream and essentially this new media moment coming to you live from inside your oven. I think whether you're already a foodie or whether you're just an influencer, this is creating a whole new media ecosystem right in the oven to check in on your food and also share it with others. And that's really interesting that you mentioned media moments. I would think that this automation is diminishing the touch points that users would ultimately have to have with their environment. But we see this oven that can stream. We see TVs with lights and TVs bigger than the ones I have in my living room. So do you think there's more accessibility for brands in the home these days? Yeah, absolutely. I think with the large rollout of Matter, there's going to be a lot more interfaces within the home. A big trend I talked about this year was embrace the interface. Right now, we're in this moment where there's all kinds of new media opportunities and possibilities popping up. And that doesn't mean that brands need to be on every single screen. You know, when we reach for the refrigerator, that new shiny screen from Samsung Smart Refrigerator, Bespoke Four Door. This isn't exactly a place where we want brands popping up all throughout the home. But what this is doing is creating that ecosystem of new touch points. So whether it's more of a sensorial opportunity, like Polar creating at-home aromatherapy in the bathroom with the Sprig pod, think Nespresso for the shower, or whether it's Nanoleaf automating light routines through their smart light board, we are having all of these new interfaces and abilities within the home so that people can essentially have these more customized futures. 
And what about some of those that are more resistant to the invasion of technology in the home? What about things like the MUI board? Do you think there's going to be a greater adoption of things that are screen lists, if you will, that enable people to have or interface with technology still? That's a great setup, Ryan. We're right in this point of tension right now where just because we're having more technology in the home doesn't necessarily mean that we need to have an invasion of screens. Something like MUI board, it's like a more natural wooden control panel operating different smart devices within the home. This creates a hub. It can either complement or even eliminate other entry points. It used to be, it was only voice control for commands for your smart devices, or it was in-app mobile controls where you're having all these bright screens at nighttime where you have to like adjust your lighting or adjust set your alarm for tomorrow morning with your smart alarm. Rather than that, we have what's called Calm Technology from Kamui Lab Board, where people have more opportunities for hubs that can be controlled through that one interface. And something like this, for people who didn't get a chance to see it, it's simply a piece of wood. So it can hang on your wall like a piece of art. It looks a little more like a sculpture. And then when you want to interact with your smart home devices, you simply tap it and it wakes up and comes to life. Love it. You got two people here that care very much about aesthetics. So if Chelsea and I are recommending it, you know it's going to be a fabulous addition to your home. But we talked plenty about the at-home economy, Chelsea. I just want to know, having walked the show floor for the first time with the lab officially, was there something that stood out to you agnostic of category that really caught your eye? I saw something in Eureka Park that really caught my attention, and this was the block smart cutting board. As much as it seems a little bit silly or a little bit extra, it's CES. Let's talk about screens in unexpected places. It's going to run you for about $700 in addition to a monthly subscription. However, what you're getting with this is that on-demand live cooking class that's not going to be up on a laptop or something where you have to dry off your hands to touch it, interact with your technology. This is going to be a screen that's baked right into your cutting board. So it feels super personal. It's seamless. And you can get that one-to-one comparison if you're trying to learn new visual ways to either cut or cook, basically just making it that much easier to be that elevated chef at home. Could you imagine you ask someone to julienne some vegetables and they hand you matchsticks? How embarrassing. Now the block yeah, will save you from kitchen. that. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Chelsea. I'm super interested in the block as well. Thanks, Ryan. Here to take us from the screen that's fixated on the top of your cutting board to the one that's probably sitting in your living room is our entertainment expert, Richard Yao. Richard, really a pleasure having you on the mic with me. Hello, hello. Are you ready to be entertained? I am definitely ready to be regaled by your wonderful storytelling. Why don't you start us off with some of the most interesting innovations you saw from an at-home or just general entertainment perspective? Oh, you know, say as there's going to be new TV, bigger, brighter than ever, or the gaming company. Every year. The big ones are there. Exactly, yeah. Say as, you know, as far as it's a auto show or digital health show, you mm-hmm. know, urine scan, what have you. At the end of the day, people just want giant big screen in their house. So we're not getting away from that just yet, you know. That's yeah. the truth. I mean, <laughs> but honestly, the new innovation is not necessarily coming from those like TV manufacturer anymore. Also, we did hear the announcement of Roku for whatever reason, decided to make their own Roku branded smart TV. Now Roku has a big market share, but their strategy has always been, you know, they will work with the lower end 
you know, right. TV manufacturer to sort of make their own Roku TV and put a little Roku OS in there and get advertising dollar out of their fast channel that come with the system. This time, they probably decided, well, if Amazon can make their own Fire TV branded TV set, then why not we? So I think they're working with one of the TV manufacturers to make their own Roku branded TV. And that's mm. sort of the big sort of news coming out of CES online from. Is that an innovation hit or a miss for you? I don't know. I think it makes sense, right? If they think their brand is strong enough to be a starting point, then why not? So, Richard, I think the Roku TV is definitely an interesting innovation and definitely an interesting tact for that company to take. But what about future media implications and what the future of entertainment looks like? Were there any technologies on display that really piqued your interest from that point of view? Well, there's two things I think, you know, has a strong showing as he has. One is really new, that's the generative AI thing. We see a lot of startups in the Eureka Park start to explore using, you know, generative AI to create different personalized entertainment, especially in the sort of dynamic creative for marketers. So that's really cool. And I think we're literally at the beginning of that sort of synthetic media era that we will see more play out over the next few years. The other end is sort of like, you know, a very familiar trend that has been with us for at least a decade, but it's still in that infancy right now. Of course, I'm talking about VR, AR, and the whole immersive media, you know, alternative reality, whatever you want to call it. Of course, some company bought out their new VR headset. I'm thinking, of course, the HTC Vive Elite headset, which is a pretty high-end, but also has a great design form factor, probably one of the best, more lightweight design we've seen for like mixed reality headset so far. But that's not going to move the needle because it's so higher-end, like just from a press point. Who else besides Vive put out a VR headset? I know that was an $1,100 priced one. Was there something that's a little bit more palatable for the everyday consumer? Well, beyond the market leader, which is the Oculus headset right now, I think Sony's PSVR 2 will have a pretty good chance at challenging the market too. Of course, especially with all the AAA gaming titles that Sony has Mm. access to, that's going to make PSVR 2 a very strong challenge in that regard. Do you think that virtual reality is the future of entertainment or it doesn't have to be VR specifically, but more immersive formats? Do you think storytelling has really caught up to the way that we capture? Not at all. I think Hollywood is still stuck in the older ways of media creation. Although I think both this sort of rise of generative AI and immersive media is going to challenge a lot of the sort of production and creative on our content business. Wow. And that would be very interesting to play out, which is why I, in my CES content section, talking about the future of entertainment, I specifically called out the strong impact that video game industry is going to have for the rest of the entertainment ecosystem, because they're the one at the forefront at developing not just those immersive, interactive entertainment, but also leading the charge on the development of metaverse. Right? If matter is going to be this primary media environment in the future, then that's something the gaming company has a head start against a lot of the traditional studio and media owners. So that's going to be interesting to see. Are we going to start seeing these synthetic media tools embedded into a lot more of the services that we use as consumers to kind of take some of that creative necessity off of our plate? Honestly, yeah. We already see TikTok have their own 
text to image generator for you to make some like weird background for your little TikTok. So you can see like easy way to integrate into those like everyday mass market consumer app that eventually is gonna really popularize and making sure those tools are accessible and also to the playing the level field between a amateur creator versus a professional production. So I think with the introduction of the metaverse over the last few years, or at least what people are calling the metaverse, points to gaming being the next frontier in terms of immersive media experiences. But Richard, were there any other categories that stood out to you from CES this year that are playing a pivotal role in the transformation of entertainment as we know it? Yeah, definitely. Adam already talked about how much the bloody battle for the Inca ecosystem is just starting. And part of that is obviously going to change how entertainment brand or even just regular content shows up in our vehicles, right? And we do see some interesting announcement from the CES. For example, NVIDIA is partnering with a bunch of smaller EV manufacturers to bring their GeForce Now cloud gaming service into the backseat uh, display. Basically, now your car is the next gaming room. For a lot of people, I think that's going to be very interesting. Uh, I already mentioned, you know, Sony is partnering with Honda to announce their own EV brand. And of course, Sony is a global leader in gaming with their PlayStation mm-hmm. asset. How natively integrated as PlayStation asset will be in their own EV? That would be a strong differentiator for their market. The other thing I really like coming out of CES about entertainment in car, especially immersive entertainment in car, is the company Holoride, which created sort of immersive VR experience design for the backseat. So imagine you get into Uber, right? You actually get to go on a virtual roller coaster ride while you Uber take you to your destination. And their VR experience is tailored to the motion of the car. So you won't get emotion sick, I hope. Yeah, being tailored to the motion of car definitely helped mitigate some of that nausea that's associated with virtual reality experiences. I know tons of creators out there are already probably thinking about ways that they could integrate their own games and their own immersive entertainment into that form factor, which I think is incredibly rich. Totally, yeah. And Hollera is not exactly new to CES this year, but they did mm. announce this new sort of retrofit media kit. So now if your car is set up for this complicated backseat VR sort of entertainment system, you can just buy this tiny little smart speaker size thing, put it to your dashboard, and then suddenly your car can be retrofitted to support this sort of futuristic in-car VR experience. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, and we saw tons of technologies in the haptic space that are bringing some of that motion technology to your person as well, such as vests and gloves and all these other things to help you experience entertainment at that same level of like being in a vehicle. But we've talked plenty about entertainment, even though I know you can wax poetic about this subject (laughs) for days on end. Why don't you just tell me about your favorite thing that you saw at CES this year, though? My favorite thing, I believe this came out of Eureka Park for the startup playground. This company called Rematch, and mm. all they do is stage those very elaborate event recreating like iconic sports matches. For example, they were still kissing this 1980 Wimbledon Championship match. So think about it as like a very elaborate, immersive LARPing experience, but huh. 
Like, you, it's almost like you're going to an immersive theater, but instead of going to something like Sleep No More, those sort of immersive theater, you are actually transported back in time as a attendee at an iconic sports match. And of course, even though they're right now still focused on sports match, I can think a lot of different historical entertainment events, like an iconic movie premiere from the 60s. It's just very interesting way of setting up those sort of immersive experience. And of course, because they're doing this in such an elaborate offline kind of way, the fidelity is really high. But you could imagine how this set up for the future of metaverse reenactment, right? Because mm. that's how once the fidelity can reach a certain level, once consumers get used to attending events in those virtual events, that'll be really a game changer for the entertainment industry as well. I know that rematch is something that I would definitely be keen on as someone who doesn't support teams that win very often to be transported back into times and dimensions where they actually did would be something that I'd be keen to see. So watch out for rematch scenarios unfolding in cities near you. If they're smart, maybe they can do something with sports betting. You know, that's really a booming vice economy no it it definitely was and i think that ties in pretty nicely to the vice economy that i did cover at ces i would love to have the advantage of knowing what the outcome of the match was before actually (laughs) betting on it i think that i probably wouldn't be doing this podcast full-time and be sitting on an island very secluded somewhere but to talk more about the vice economy and some of the interesting things that we saw at ces I think alcohol is always something that we see, especially in the Eureka Park space with tons of people thinking that they've reinvented the way for you to brew beer, brew mead, brew wine, brew absolutely anything in your basement and or garage. There's always a slew of devices ranging from Pico brew all the way up to the Bartesian. I think that's always a category that's going to be saturated at CES. But Richard, the real winner, at least from a brand and media marketing perspective, from CES and just at large from the vice economy is sports betting, like you said. Do you fancy yourself a sports better? No, but I'll bet on like the Oscars and stuff. I'm more of a award season better. But- And we're in prime season for awards. And Uh you may be thinking to yourself like, oh, that is so annoying. We don't have a way. But a lot of people are starting to integrate non-sporting events into their betting services. And while FanDuel and DraftKings don't necessarily have best picture odds on their front page, we do see services such as Versus that are more leaned into the social element and transactional nature of competing against your friends, as opposed to actual prognosticating based on statistical analysis of hunks who mash balls really hard. So I do think betting at large is being transformed in America to kind of pivot away specifically on sports betting as the legality opens up to more states around the country. Right. Well, whatever helps people to engage with their passion, right? If it gets make people happy, I think. Exactly. And that's something that we saw demonstrated by the data that I pulled for this presentation is that people are not engaging with these gambling experiences, whether it be daily fantasy or sports betting, or even online casino gambling of the slot machine variety. They're doing it because it's a predominantly social engagement. They're doing it with their friends, with their family. For me, it's playing blackjack with my grandmother. So I know there's really an appeal for all ages for this type of vice out there yeah truly i remember seeing a report saying like the emergence of sports betting is actually legal sports betting is actually helping the younger generation to be more engaged with sports content Mm. and we all know how much live sport is such an important media channel for brands 
that had to reach their audience. If sports betting is going to be this part of the bigger sports ecosystem, then I think a lot of brands need to pay attention to that. And when we're thinking about the future of entertainment, which you so eloquently just spoke on, People are second screening all the time, whether they're watching sports or watching something a little bit more serious that they should probably fixate their attention on more closely. People are pulling up, whether it be a companion application, TikTok on the side that they're not really paying attention to. These are all great targetable media moments for brand advertisers today. Trying to get someone's 100% attention is probably a thing of the past. So let's focus on opportunities to target these millennials and Gen Zers where they have their eyes fixated somewhere else. Yes, look at the children. The children are the future. So, <laughs> well, Ryan, you have spent the entire episode asking everyone what their favorite thing from CES this year is. So let me throw that question back at you. What is your favorite thing from the CES Shopfloor this year? Wow, really putting me on the spot. In terms of the future of entertainment and being the huge nerd gamer that I am, something that's been on the show floor the last three years that I do love is the Omnipad, which is a multi-directional treadmill that will enable you to kind of walk and stroll and give you that more lifelike presence in the metaverse. If you guys are fans of Mythic Quest and mediocre show on Apple TV. You may have seen Rob McElhenney strutting his stuff on one in a couple of different episodes, but digressing away from the Omnipad, another innovation that really caught my eye and stood out to me from the CES show floor this year was the Waste Shark. And what looked like just another one of those autonomous mini drones that Chad alluded to in his CES overview at the top of the conversation was a clever little buddy that swam through waterways and canals to help clean up trash litter and anything that may have fell in there. So while pretty simple in its design, probably just looks like any battle bot that you would see on Nickelodeon back in the day, it really is a clever way to help sanitize and clean up the oceans, which ocean tech, restorative power and sustainability is definitely a big trend in CES 2023. Definitely. VR treadmill and robo shacks, those things are what keep us coming back to CES every year. Exactly. It's always the wacky and the wonderful, you know, Guy Fieri famously said, if it's funky, we'll find it. And I think that sentiment rings true across CES as well. Certainly. Yes. That's our show, folks. Thank you so much for joining us for this hour-long special CES edition of Floor 9. As ever, you can find us on Medium at the IPG Lab and on Twitter at IPG Lab. Thanks forever for being here. We hope that you'll join us for the rest of our episodes in 2023. And until next time, bye-bye. <laughs>